Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Welcome to the first webinar in a four-part series presented by American Jewish Committee and Tablet Magazine, titled 21st Century Europe and the Jews. Over these four programs, AJC and Tablet will explore timely issues related to Jewish life and the protection of democracies in Europe. Today's program will explore the United Kingdom and the Corbynization of the Labour Party. Anya and Liel, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Claire. In this era of virtual programming, welcome to a live recording and a podcast collaboration between AJC's People of the Pod and Tablet Magazine's Unorthodox. I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman, coming to you live from my basement in northern New Jersey. And I'm Leah Leibowitz, coming from Tulsa, Oklahoma, also known as the Manchester of the Midwest. Uh, We lack uh, your posh accents, nor are we as funny or well-educated as you, but that gives us the perfect opportunity uh, to ask you a bunch of questions and learn uh, a bit about what is going on in England. uh, How worried should we be, to put it the the most profoundly Jewish way, uh, and, and ask a few very timely questions. Mania, take it away. So indeed, today we are talking about why Jews went right in Britain. Jeremy Corbyn's tenure as The British Labour Party leader was fraught with anti-Semitic scandals, and during his nearly five years uh, in his position, the Labour Party was poisoned with anti-Semitism, amplified hateful rhetoric, and failed to properly address Jewish concerns. So, did the Corbynization of the Labour Party move Jews to the right, or did it leave them wandering in the desert, politically homeless? Now, we balance this panel— Not by gender, obviously. Hannah, you're shouldering a lot. Thank you so much for being here. Rather, we balanced it with a little humor, a Jewish tendency perhaps, as we have two guests with us today who have made us laugh out loud a time or two, yet they are here to talk about something quite serious and not at all a laughing matter, and that is the rise of anti-Semitism. First, we have with us Howard Jacobson, author of Booker Prize winner The Finkler Question and nearly two dozen more novels and nonfiction. His books often explore the modern British Jewish experience, but do not call him the British version of Philip Roth. He prefers to be called the Jewish Jane Austen, which I am sure Leo prefers as well as I know he is not Philip Roth's biggest fan. Likewise, Howard has not been the Labour Party's biggest fan, suggesting the party change its slogan, for the many, not the few, to for the many, not the Jew. Our second guest is David Badil, a stand-up comedian, a novelist, and most recently the author of a book. Uh, sometimes you just see a book with a title and you say to yourself, damn, I wish I wrote that. The book is Jews Don't Count, uh, of which an American edition was blissfully released uh, last month. David has been a member of the Labour Party, but also critical of the anti-Semitic rhetoric by some of its members uh, and is tremendously, a tremendously funny and accomplished comedian, uh, as, as well as a, a deep thinker on these issues. We also have David Hirsch, the author of Contemporary Left Anti-Semitism, which is also a pretty good title for a book which examines the insidious forms of anti-Semitism that are cloaked in compassion and therefore kind of uh, tolerated by anyone from trade union and churches uh, to uh, intellectuals and other forms of uh, polite company. Last but not least, Hannah Rose, the former president of the Union of Jewish Students in the UK. She is now a doctoral candidate in war studies at King's College London researching researching anti-Semitism, I can't even get it out of my mouth, from the far right. But she is also quite concerned about anti-Semitism from the far left, which is why she personally left the Labour Party in 2018, troubled that its tone had begun to normalize anti-Semitic rhetoric, especially when it comes to criticizing Israel. Welcome to all of our guests. But before we start, it is important that we extend our condolences to the United Kingdom and acknowledge the brutal murder of Parliament member Sir David Amos last week. We don't yet know the motives of the man who murdered Amos, but his death does remind us of the danger of extremes, whether they are far left, far right, religious, all of which generate their own brands of anti-Semitism. 
So while our guests are with us today to focus on the far left, the extreme that most often gets a pass, I would like to open by asking how you see extremist views of all stripes fueling anti-Semitism in the UK. And, and Hannah, perhaps based on your research, you have some thoughts on this. Well, yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question. Um, I think, as you identified, anti-Semitism is one of the commonalities of all varieties of extremism. Um, and this is something that we need to watch very carefully when we're looking at drivers of radicalization. Anecdotally, uh, a couple of years ago, I was involved in roundtables for the uh, Mayor's Office for Policing and Crime in London, um, and they were doing roundtables with lots of different um, faith groups in London. I think there was only one Jewish community faith group, and I was told afterwards that when they asked the question, what types of extremism exist, all the faith groups answered um, far-right extremism and Islamist extremism, but it was only the Jewish faith group roundtable that specifically identified far-left extremism as a threat um, for minorities in the UK. Uh, I think that says something about the extent to which, um, to quote David Baddiel, Jews don't count on the far left, um, but it's definitely um, a problem across extremist thinking and also in mainstream society as well. I was going to say something about um, what we might call populism, um, and it seems to me that populism is is a kind of embryonic uh, version of of the politics which became totalitarian politics in the in the 20th century. And what populism does is it kind of postulates these elites who are in charge, who steal our money and oppress us and lie and pretend that there's a democratic state and free speech and all the rest of it, and then the people which has kind of one authentic interest. And in that framework. Um, there's always an enemy of the people. There has to be an enemy of the people because the populists never really deliver what they promised. And it seems to me that the anti-Semitic notion of the Jews provides a kind of perfectly evolved uh, uh, face for the face of the enemy of the people. And, and George Orwell knew that in 1984 when he literally gave it a Jewish face. So I think if we think about populism in, in its different versions, each of which feed and legitimize each other, then we can see that the enemy of the people is almost attracted. It, it's attracted and attractive to anti-Semitism. I think David is right. Uh, and I think this is why Jews are always the archetype, the uh, condition for conspiracy theory and uh, anger and rage across the board, for extremism across the board, because all forms of political extremism wherever they're coming from, require a sense that they are marginalised and they are oppressed and they are rebels fighting up against this enemy. And Jews are the only minority who are pictured in the minds of racists as powerful. This is a really key thing as to why this happens. Uh, the Jews are the only minority who have this double-edged racism, low and high. So we're vermin and we're liars and we're thieves and we're subhuman, like all other minorities as racists might imagine them, but we are also, and this is unique to Jews, in control of the world, rich, powerful, privileged, secretly controlling politics behind the scenes. This means that if you want to be a revolutionary, whether far right or far left, uh, you can always at some level suggest that there are controlling forces. I mean, David is essentially saying this, controlling forces keeping you from that revolutionary uh, target, whatever it might be, and you have to give that a human face. People don't understand the idea that structures really create power. You have to, at some level, create a human face for it to have any populist force. And that's why, in a very deep and buried way, the face is always of the Jew, as it has been throughout Christian history, of that devil and of that powerful thing. And so, David Badil, this uh, you write beautifully, first of all, in your book. I, I just want to make sure that I, that I get this, this uh, sentence in, because I think it, it sort of encapsulates what you just said so beautifully. A sacred circle, you write, is drawn around those who the progressive modern left are prepared to go into battle for. And it seems as if the Jews aren't in it. Why? Uh, and, and here you've just given the answer uh, that, you know, goes some way and, and, and ties it uh, to explaining it and, and ties it into, into historical processes and anti-Semitism. There are other reasons as well. There are other reasons, more modern reasons, uh, but they're all connected with power. So the oppressed, the sacred circle of oppressed minorities in the minds of the progressives, 
they are minorities who are being abused by power. So therefore, they cannot be associated with power, and Jews are associated with power, but not just because of those internal things, also because Israel is imagined as a force of power, of imperialism, of control or whatever, and also because Jews are imagined as white. This is something I talk about in the book, that, uh, that because uh, Jews are, you know, in my opinion, Jews are non-white and not quite white. Jews are not people of colour, but they are not quite white either. And the problem with the idea of the Jew as white is what I describe as Schrodinger's white, which is that you have to look at these in terms of racism and a Jew is, you know, in the minds of a white supremacist, it's entirely non-white. But in the minds of a progressive, they tend to be whiter than white. They tend to be associated with power and privilege and all the rest of it. So the point is that that sacred circle that calls to progressives as come and protect us, come and use your left-wing influence to stop power from destroying us and marginalising us or whatever, doesn't apply to Jews because of these hangover assumptions that Jews are all these things. Historically, of course, what happens is that the association of Jews with power and riches leads to genocide of Jews because it creates eventually a sense, why have Jews got all this power? Why have they got this money? Why have they got these riches? Let's burn their houses down. And so what's our game plan here? What, what kind of coalitions uh, ought we to, to seek out right now? What kind of programs ought we to promote? Where, where does this uh, grim predicament leave us? Everything that both David have said, I, of course, agree with. Um, but one should never forget. I don't want my bots doing that because they're not going to forget. We are in, Human beings are an extremist species. Are we a species? Human beings are extremists. I think we have always been, I don't know when you'd start, but we have always been extremists. You go to the Bible and that's a, that those are pretty extreme stories of pretty extreme people. And we are at the center of that and we are telling extreme stories ourselves. And from the earliest days of, of Christianity, there is an extremism there of which we are, of which we are the victims. We are the victims in all sorts of interesting ways. We are the victims partly, I think, and I'm, I'm never, never certain that this gets enough mention. We, are, we will always be blamed, I think, for inventing Christianity. Even by Christians, somewhere or other, there is built into Christianity a wish that there wasn't Christianity because Christianity inhibits us. Christianity is full of ethics that stop us living the fullest possible life. And who invented Christianity but that most ethical of ethical people who are always telling everybody else how to live, the Jews. So that's one of the reasons, I think, very early on why we are looked on with suspicion. Freud said something very interesting about this. He said, when the Nazis moved it, who was the first person to mention the Nazis? Uh, maybe, maybe David Benil. I didn't. I, didn't, I said genocide, but I didn't mention the Nazis. Oh, well, then I won again. Who was the first person to mention the Nazis? But I haven't mentioned him yet. <laughs> we have a special prize for the first person who does, so go ahead. I'm still not going to do I'm not going to let somebody else win that. Freud said that when, the, that when the Nazis moved into the Baltic states, they were themselves surprised by how willingly the people of Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia took up the Nazi cause. The Nazis offered to be appalled by this. They found those people a touch cruel even for them. And Freud said that it was embraced by those, those countries because they were the last countries in Europe to take on Christianity. They were until the 14th century tree worshippers. And he reckoned, this is Freud speaking, not me, and he reckoned that the tree worshippers had a particular resentment of Jews for being the ones who had ushered Christianity into their world. They were happy living there, the life they were living, and in comes Christianity, which is, which is born of, of, of the Jewish ethic. I do think it's interesting to pick up David Bedil's point that the Jew is, the Jew is hated for being opposite things. The Jew is hated for being poor and miserable, and the Jew is also hated for being triumphant and rich. The Jew was, but this goes back all the way to, to the Middle Ages. The Jew is, is the fetal Judaic. The Jew stinks. What does he stink of? He stinks of the poverty in which he lives, but he also stinks of the devil. He stinks of his association with the devil. And through the devil, he's able to control worlds, the whole world. So he is, the Jew is at one and the same time the lowest thing that creeps, and he's also the most powerful thing that creeps. It's a pretty tough thing to to throw off both those accusations. Throw off the one, prosper, 
leave the poverty in which you've been stuck for hundreds of years, come move from Eastern Europe to Western Europe, improve your lot, start to live nice bourgeois lives, you are hated, you are hated for that. Uh, the Jew has a lot of difficulty, and will always have a lot of difficulty, throwing off these contrarieties of loathing. I want to pull it back to far-left anti-Semitism in the UK. And Liel, you shared with me that you really feel a, a, a kindred, you, you feel that David Hirsch is a kindred spirit of sorts um, in terms of his personal background um, and in terms of, of his gradual, if not sudden realization that the, that the left was turning on the Jewish community, right? That he who wasn't a Trotskyite in his youth cast the first stone. Uh, David, I, I want you to get personal here. I, I want you to sort of both describe your journey, but as it is a journey that myself and I think a lot of other people tuning in have kind of lived through from youthful convictions uh, that kind of enshrine us in the notion that the left stands for all that is right and compassionate and good. Uh, what happened? How, how did that uh, form of political ideology and practice specifically grow so corrupted when it, when it comes to the Jews? Well, I think um, that that was that is never a kind of that was never a timeless fact about the left, right? Um, I think the notion which has already been mentioned about homelessness is really important. I think that um, anti-Semitism always operates by uh, taking Jews in places where they feel comfortable, where they feel at home, where they feel part of a community, and alienating them from that community. And sometimes that happens sort of physically, for example, in Germany, that, you know, Jews felt themselves to be part of the community, and then they were um, uh, literally alienated from the nation and then from their lives and from the community of rights. Um, this happens in so many analogous ways. Um, I spoke to somebody once whose father was a leading communist in Czechoslovakia. He was a war hero. He was a fighter pilot in Britain. He went back to Czechoslovakia in 1945. And by 1951, at the time of the Slansky trial, him and all the other Jews were hung or thrown out or put down uranium mines, right? He thought he was part of the community. He thought he was part of building socialism in Czechoslovakia. And then it, he became, he realized that he was no longer part of the community, but he was an enemy of the people. And you can look at stories, the people who were at the Durban Conference Against Racism, some of them, how they felt at home in the, in the, in the universe, the global universe of the anti-racist movement. You can look at the uh, stories from the feminist movement in the 70s, how women who were part of the Spare Rib Collective got, got alienated. And to some extent, that's my experience. Um, that was my experience in my trade union. Once the, uh, the, the, the campaign to boycott Israel took hold and the anti-Semitism that came with it, it was also my experience in my university and in my, you know, in my discipline, really, of sociology that at one point, I was a kind of exciting, you know, successful young sociologist, and then I became a Zionist sociologist, which means a sociologist who lies uh, instead of does sociology. Um, and, and the way it's done is very straightforward, actually. The way it's done is that anyone who raises the issue of anti-Semitism is accused of lying, is accused of doing so dishonestly, and is accused of therefore representing uh, uh, forces that are outside of the left or outside of the community of the good within it. So they are uh, treated as treacherous and they are kicked out. And that's how it works. So I, I want to follow this up. Uh, and, and this is a question for everyone. But but uh, Mr. Jacobson, perhaps you would uh, take the first step. If a slightly more bearded, uh, less couth version of me was listening in, uh, I can imagine a person like that saying something, well, gentlemen, you've just proved uh, what we've been saying all along, which is that there is no room for Jewish life uh, anywhere outside of the land of Israel where none of these problems exist. Uh, not a theory that I myself subscribe to, uh, but one that I know uh, circulates and permeates the air. Mr. Jacobson, the floor is yours. Uh, first of all, I'm gonna have to understand your question. What do you mean a less, be bearded, a less bearded version of yourself? How are you presenting yourself? 
a a a subset of uh, Zionist uh, right leaning people who would look at your travails and everything that you're describing now in the sense of hopelessness and say, right, get out of England. I don't care how long you've been here, what you think your community is. You have no future anywhere else but the Jewish state. Well, I mean, I I would not agree with such a person, but such a person has a very strong point. Such a person has a very strong argument. And there have been times, of course, had one been in living in various parts of Europe in the late 19th, early 20th century, in which one would have agreed with them. There was only one place to go, and that was, since there was now something like an, a burgeoning Israel, there. I think there's a very strong case for that. It's a case I feel deeply, although, uh, although I've not done it myself, I can see. My dad, what my dad used to say to me was, Israel, well, we'll think about that when we need to, but we might need to. We might need to because um, it will be like a, it will be a, a safe a raft a safety raft. It will be somewhere we will go to when the horrible things start again. And it was an assumption when I was growing up. Although we lived up in perfect safety uh, uh, and amity with our neighbours, but it was an assumption that it would not always be like that. I think what was so frightening about Corbyn, if I can now make that late leap back was that we, for many of us, we thought that moment had now come. And we thought that that moment had now come, and all those Jews had been warning against, against such a thing. We thought it had come because he bore such an innocent aspect. He seemed such an ordinary, unimportant, unintelligent, banal little figure. He could not be a problem. For someone like, for a super subtle Jew like me, I thought that's precisely where the problem will lie. In our time, they're not going to come for us in jackboots. They're, they're going to come for us in cheap, ill-fitting suits. They're going to come for us in, since you mentioned beards, not even very profusely grown beards, and they're going to say very ordinary things which excite very ordinary and young people unimaginably, and that's where the danger is going to be. I was actually terrified of Corbyn. I think I was much more terrified, certainly I was more terrified of Corbyn, I think, than David Bedil was. I, I was feeling that David Bedil sort of half feels he wasn't really, Corbyn wasn't really such an anti-Semite. And I'm not sure where, and I'm not sure where David Hirsch is on this. I saw Corbyn as a quintessential anti-Semite in that, as I read him, he hated every aspect of Jews and whether he knew he did or he didn't, didn't matter. And when people asked me to prove it, I simply said, look at the way he looks at you. If you look at him on, te- on a television screen, look at the way he looks at you. And they said, but he isn't looking at you. And I had to say, oh, yes, but he is looking at you because that's all he sees when he looks out. When Corbyn looked out into the world, he saw a Jew or a version of the Jew or some kind of a Jew which gave him his justification for living the political life he did. He was, to me, a person, I don't know, well, I've got onto this sooner than I meant to. He was, to me, someone consumed with a hatred of Jews from top to bottom. And when you see that, I'm coming back to your question, and when you see that hatred of Jews and you see that people are capable of that in our time, even though they bear such an innocent and even naive aspect, then indeed the argument that you're better off getting out of here because as long as you hang on around here, uh, you've had it. The problem is, of course, that those of us who do hang around in in uh, in the safe West, as we as we call it, hanker after that whole diasporic idea of being the Jew. And the more we've got nowhere to go and the more we don't have a home, and I have less of a home than the others because they're a bit lefty and I was never a bit lefty and I'm certainly not a bit righty, so there's nowhere I can go and I rather, as a novelist, hanker after that, having nowhere to go. There was a song we used to sing by Leon Fulk called Tell Me Where Can I Go, Tell Me Where Can I Go, to the east, to the west, there's nowhere else. And we loved that song when we were grammar school boys. Growing. We were those rootless Jews. We loved the idea of it. So even though there were Corbyns all around us and they haven't gone away, we have scotched the snake, not killed it. Nonetheless, there's something about the idea about being here and being free and not quite being right and not quite being where one should be that suits anyway my profession of novelist. David Badil, David Hirsch, where do you stand on Jeremy Corbyn and, and how perhaps not just his anti-Semitic tendencies, but his awareness of that tendency? I think that something else is important, which is driving a, a much sort of bigger cultural agenda, really, which is identity politics in general. Uh, and so 
Identity politics in general creates a context, which is a good context, essentially, uh, although it has lots of flaws within it, which is that, you know, this is we have a, now a much more heightened awareness uh, of minorities and of offence against minorities and of representation and inclusivity and whatever. And that is not being applied to Jews, right? And it's not being applied to Jews mainly by the people who drive that agenda, which is the left. And so what we're talking about here, and this is what my book is about, is an absence, is a failure, a, a neglect. It's not really an active holding of the Jew in their sights that you normally get the far left. And from the version of Corbyn that Howard just point, uh, pointed out, my own personal opinion is that uh, all that is going on within Corbyn's subconscious, and it's mainly to do with what we talked about earlier, which is the politics of hatred for anyone who can be perceived as being, in a mythological way, in control or in power or whatever. And there's no doubt that with Corbyn, that is the face of the Jew. But I am less interested in that to some extent than I am just in this sense, which I think is really important, that the, the, uh, the left are erasing anti-Semitism as an important concern. Indeed, they've got to the point now where in Britain, I would say, anti-Semitism as a concern is seen as right wing, i.e. that uh, it's actually like that's what the Conservatives are going to bring out and they're bothered about. The political factionalism that has happened as a result of things like the Labour Party trying to purge anti-Semitism uh, and indeed the right wing weaponising it and all that that this thing, which is actually about racism and about trying to rid our society of racist elements, is talked about mainly in terms of factional political terms. So that when Keir Starmer, who is the new head of the Labour Party, tries to get rid of anti-Semitism the Labour Party, instantly the left starts saying, this is an attack on the left. There's not even lip service paid to the possibility that he's trying to be anti-racist. Because anti-racism against Jews is now seen, in terms of calling it out, as the preserve of the right. So what I'm talking about really is a kind of like complicated, un, sometimes unconscious, sometimes conscious neglect or disinterest or relegation of Jewish concern on the left, which is finding a much more complicated set of flames towards Jews. Hannah, David, thoughts on this? Yeah, I, if I could um, step in here. Um, I think it's easy when we're talking about um, politics and anti-Semitism to look specifically, you know, just what you see on social media, on Twitter, or just what is going on political parties. But I think if you look across the country, there was a resounding rejection of Corbyn and his anti-Semitism. Um, I used to work for an, an MP, a non-Jewish MP, um, who spoke a lot about anti-Semitism. And he would set, talk about when he went to his constituency in the black country, you know, no Jews in his constituency. And people would stop him on the street and say, thank you for talking about anti-Semitism. This is really important. There's something not right about this. It's fundamentally un-British. So I think it's still the case, if you look at the statistics from the Community Security Trust, that the majority of the Jewish community will live their lives free, fully expressing their Judaism and without coming into contact with anti-Semitism. Of course, on social media, that's different. Things get amplified in different ways. Um, it's easy for everyone to see one incident and that creates that fear. But in terms of whether the UK is a good place for Jews to live, I still absolutely think that's the case. And, you know, call me the youthful optimist, but I'm British and I never had any plans to go anywhere that wasn't the UK. I think perhaps the issue underlying here is not necessarily Corbyn, because, you know, um, nowadays Corbyn is pretty much politically irrelevant. But the lasting impact of Corbynism, that political institutional culture that hasn't quite shifted yet. Um, this is something that we saw on social media a lot in May during the um, spike in Israel-Palestine conflict. There was a in the UK a 500% increase in anti-Semitism, um, particularly among young people. That was experienced on social media where young people were sharing all these Insta graphics, uh, you know, trying to to look clever, trying to look like they knew what they were talking about. Um, but as Robert Jenrick, the former community secretary, said, um, young people were, for the first time, sharing anti-Semitic content, not knowing that they were doing it and not caring that they were. Um, so there's this kind of lack in inhibition where Jewish people are told um, that their experiences are invalid um, and this kind of overarching confidence or arrogance where people think they know more about anti-Semitism than its victims. So we have this long lasting political culture, but I think among the wider British public, there is sympathy for Jewish people. And if you look at the, um, I think the Jewish Leadership Council in the UK did polling after the May spike in anti-Semitism, and largely there was still good understanding of uh, the Jewish community 
widespread rejection of anti-Semitism. Um, and I think that remains the case. It's very easy to look in these specific um, pockets of anti-Semitic content, which we absolutely should, and we should address it where it arises. But overarchingly, the UK is still a good place to be Jewish, I fundamentally believe. I, I agree. Can I just say, I agree with that. Uh, and uh, I also, I was sort of heartened quite emotionally uh, by the sense that anti-Semitism getting in the news, which is kind of an amazing thing, right? Uh, you know, the idea that anti-Semitism is a headline in major mainstream newspapers is something I wouldn't have expected to really see in my lifetime. But then what the sense was that you know, the wider country felt this was really an alien thing, that anti-Semitism had become a major political issue, and I and it was rejected. And I completely agree. The only thing I would disagree with, uh, not disagree, disagree with, because you brought it up, but that thing of young people sharing clearly anti-Semitic images uh, and sort of not really being called out for it is exactly what I'm talking about. Which is that we're talking about a notion of a progressive agenda, right? Which is for the future, and my, my worry is still that. The relegation of any sense that Jewish offence and anti-Semitism or whatever is an important thing means that within young people and with and online and within essentially the coming discourse, there is a sense in which we're not going to worry about this and we worry about everything else. We are trigger worried about trans offence and about, you know, black offence and whatever it might be but we are not worried about Jewish offence, and we can post what we like, essentially. And I think that is important, because I think it is a coming discourse, and it is. I got texts from young people, young Jews, after Jews came out, Jews Don't Count came out, said that they are sat in meetings, sort of, you know, these are woke Jews who are with lots of young students, and saying, this is the first time I felt legitimised to say, what about anti-Semitism? Because most of the time I sit there thinking, people will laugh at me. Can I just add one thing to that? Sorry. Um, I think this mention of young people makes me think the, the problem that, 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 that David addresses mainly in his book is the, the, what people say about Jews who talk about racism a lot. And it might be that if you wander around the country and you talk to ordinary constituents who are not going to university and are not on social media all the time, race is not such a big issue for them. That's to say it's not an ideological thing that they are tied to by their heartstrings. Where race matters to people, this is where the problem is, precisely because there is a feeling around that it is impossible to be racist about a Jew. You cannot be racist about a Jew because the Jew is himself a fount of racism. And he is a fount of racism by virtue of, well, all sorts of the things that we've been saying um, about how Jews have been thought of over the years, because Jews are themselves racist because Jews are themselves a chosen people. That's a misunderstood idea. But mainly in our time, we cannot talk about Jews as racist because they are themselves the founts of racism by virtue of Israel. Israel is a racist country. This is the, so it goes. This is the argument. Israel practices racism on other people. Therefore, we are damned if we're going to waste our racist passions on them. I want to say something about the relationship between anti-Semitism and Israel. Um, I think that I'm going to talk about grammar, right? I'm going to talk, Howard will like this. I'm going to talk about hyphens. Um, we don't write anti-Semitism with a hyphen. and Well, I don't anyway. And the reason for that is because there is no Semitism um, which anti-Semites are against, right? That the Jew, the, the anti-Semitic notion of the Jew that anti-Semites set up their worldview against is their own invention. And I have begun to stop, if that's possible, uh, writing anti-Zionism with a hyphen, because I believe that more and more anti-Zionism as an ideology, as a worldview, as a view of, that explains everything in the world, um, does not relate at all to Israel or to Zionism, but it relates to the anti-Zionists' own invention, own invented Israel. It relates to an Israel that they have put together from little scraps of truth and exaggeration and invention, and it has been stuck together using the glue of bits of older anti-Semitisms, and it has created an, an anti-Jewish ideology called anti-Zionism. So I think um, I am not as optimistic as Hannah. Um, I was involved in struggles uh, with left anti-Semites actually in the 80s in the student movement, 
but also in uh, my trade union, the academic trade union after 2000. And we knew after 2000 that if we didn't win, if we didn't persuade people that this kind of uh, rhetoric with jackboots and, and you are against the boycott because it tells you to be in the Talmud and all of this stuff, if we didn't win in the union, it would grow and it did grow. It grew, grew extraordinarily into the Labour Party itself. Um, and I would also say, yes, it's true that Corbyn was properly rejected in the general election, but what was the choice? And the choice was between Corbyn and a man who was surfing the wave of a movement against the metropolitan, liberal, educated elites, finance capital, uh, people who uh, pretend to be liberal and, and, and good and democratic, but are in fact there to suck your blood. And it seems to me that uh, to understand left anti-Semitism, one also needs to understand right-wing populism. And uh, that worries me. And it's I don't think Corbyn could really have happened if something similar hadn't happened on the right. And in the United States of America, I think uh, what happened on the right will be familiar to you and you will understand some of it. I have two quick questions. Uh, one is primarily for you, Howard. One, uh, Hannah, is I think maybe almost exclusively for you. Uh, so Howard, in uh, 2016, you wrote uh, a tremendous novel that I that I love really, the name of which uh, I, I don't know that the AJC will be happy if I repeat it uh, on this family-friendly conversation. Uh, it was written, he said, in a, in a fit of disbelief um, after uh, watching the election of Donald Trump. So as we are, as we Americans are, you know, tremendously uh, solipsistic and, and self-centered people, uh, and as we've done you the courtesy of talking a lot about you, we, we want to bring it back to us for a second. When you look at us, when you look at American Jews, what is it that you see? Before I look at American Jews, I look at Americans. And um, what's the word I want for it? I just don't know how you were able to tolerate what you tolerated and may perhaps tolerate again. I don't know how you were able to do it. I don't know how more than six people with a screw loose were able to listen to that man stand up and talk gibberish night after night. I know why you could watch it, because I watched it because I turned on CNN every night because I wanted to watch the horror. I don't watch CNN now. I don't turn it on. What for? You've got an ordinary, a nice ordinary guy making terrible mistakes, shocking mistakes, but it's not madness. You had madness for four years and you tolerated madness for four years and you might tolerate it again. As for the Jews, what bothered me was a lot of the American Jews I knew said, you're quite right, Howard. It's, it's nonsense, but he's a friend of the Jews. He's a friend of the Jews, and if he's a friend of the Jews, we have to put up with it. To which I think there's only one, there is only one answer. He who is bad for humanity is bad for the Jews. Is that too snappy an end? Uh, no, no, it is a perfect ending, and it's also a great segue into uh, the last question before the audience question. Hannah Rose, uh, I, I was uh, deeply moved by, by your sense of optimism, which I don't think is, uh, you know, one could chalk up only to, to youthfulness. I mean, following your work, I think you make... Uh, a few good points uh, to to support this worldview. So so I want uh, to end on a on a on a, on a hopeful note. Uh, I want you to share with us some of the things that you look at uh, that make you feel cheerful. Well, I, I have to say, firstly, I work um, my day to day is researching um, far right extremism and radicalization. So if I don't remain optimistic, where, you know, where would I? Be? I pretty much couldn't do my work. Um, I think. The piece that often gets missed in these stories is actually the work that's being done on the ground to counteract all the issues that we've discussed. Um, and when I was working at the Union of Jewish Students, and I know this work still goes on, the activism um, and the positive work of young people was really stood out to me. Um, for example, on a Holocaust Memorial Day, this would have been 2018, 2019, I think, um, we had lecture theatres um, where Holocaust survivors would go and speak, which were packed out in their hundreds at communities where there were no Jewish people at all because people wanted to learn. And this work that is being done, not just by young people, um, but by Jewish activists and, and grassroots campaigners, 
really if you go into it you see the positive um positive relations that they built with other t- communities um and you see the impact firsthand so you know this was this was always my mantra but um it's one thing to look at the the glum and the the darkness but um there's a lot of positive work being done and we should be focusing on that and amplifying it as well so we do have some questions from our audience. Um, Anya Jameson from London uh, wants to know, uh, Hannah, are you comfortable going back to the Labour Party after so publicly leaving in 2018? Um, is, do you feel that it's a, a safe place now for you um, politically? Has Keir Starmer put sufficient actions behind his words? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Um, personally, I haven't rejoined um, my issues with um, generally, I'm very frustrated at two party politics and the state of um, division in the country. And um, I kind of got fed up with it all, um, which is why I haven't personally rejoined. I know a lot of Jewish people that have rejoined the Labour Party. I know a number of people that never left and stayed in the Labour Party to um, change it from within. Um, I think a lot of Jewish people will think that Kistama is doing good work. But, you know, it was never just about Corbyn, was it? It was about institutional and cultural. And that doesn't change overnight. I think a lot of people have um, really emphasised the good work that Keir has done um, and said, um, how great is it that there's no anti-Semitism in the Labour Party anymore? And I'm told this often by non-Jewish people. And I think, well, who are you to judge? You know, you, you never witness the atmosphere you were never the victim of such online vitriol um so personally i think that bitter taste has been left in the jewish community's mouths will last a bit longer than great policies passing um or individuals being um removed of their membership for anti-semitic comments it's worth saying that the membership in general is still problematic and there are still significant numbers of people who use anti-Semitic conspiracy theories um, or continue to defend Corbyn and his record of anti-Semitism. There's still plenty of those in the Labour Party. However, I think, and this is something that David Hirsch says, the choice between the two parties is not an easy one to make. We have a very strong two-party system in the UK um, and there are lots of factors that build into that. So I'm pleased that we're moving towards a point where Jewish people can feel comfortable being um, politically who they are in whatever party they um, they believe in, not just as Jews, but as people, as British citizens. Um, for me, um, it's not something that I'm looking to go back to anytime soon. Um, however, I think many people will be. Um, we saw... Uh, Margaret Hodge, um, oh no, pardon me, Louise Elman, return at the Labour Party conference, quite an emotional moment, it was very nice. Um, But personally, no, not yet. I'm curious, uh, from the other guests, Howard, do you, does your, does the slogan that you (laughs) rewrote for Labour still apply in your mind? I agree with, uh, with Hannah, I think it's very hard to see what's going on at the moment. I think there's something just ingrained I don't have anything to do with the Labour Party, so I shouldn't really talk about it. I was never a Labour man. I was never naive enough to be, even as a little boy, I did not do when, when my friends were, were leftists. I was never left-wing. That doesn't mean I'm right-wing. I didn't recognise myself there in any of that. Nonetheless, I look at the party and worry about what it pretends for, for, for the country. Um, I'm not looking for it in order to join or anything. But I see signs... Um, I see I see signs within our community altogether. Um, the, the, the things that we feared have not gone away. What I'm saying is that the boycott divestment thing is alive and well. People still believe those things. Uh, people still believe those at the, all over British universities. British universities are our main problem. First, the British university, then the Brit, and then and then Labour still harbour uh, that form of anti-Zionism which they call that form of anti-Semitism, which they call anti-Zionism, and anti-Zionism is, in my book, um, an undeniable species of, of anti-Semitism. But with anti-Zionism, you get anti-Semitism on the cheap. You can hate Jews, but not say you're hating Jews. You can hate Jews and not think you're hating Jews. And that's still a strong feeling in Britain. There's still a strong movement. And um, in universities, writers, there's a lot of writers who would have agreed with who have agreed with Sally Rooney. And as long as that's the case, as long as people feel that they can, they can make those sorts of 
those those really childish points about Israel and Israeli government and talk about apartheid and things, and then I think it's very frightening. And I remain pessimistic um, about life for Jews anywhere because of this. Indeed, a host of ours asked uh, very similar questions about uh, the current state of, of British campuses. Uh, how severe you think uh, is, is the threat coming from there and, and how indicative uh, is it of these uh, young people's future uh, entanglements uh, and, and opinions? Uh, in, in no apparent order, David Hirsch, maybe that's something you want to tackle? Um, yeah, well, I won't be rejoining the Labour Party. Um, I might well vote Labour. I mean, there's two, you know, a choice to make and one makes a choice. I won't be rejoining the Labour Party. Um, I have to earn my living in an anti-Semitic hostile environment, and I don't particularly want to go there in the evenings as well. And that's actually a serious point. Um, it, it's cumulative and it's and it's and it hurts. It still hurts. You know, you go to your lo- local Labour Party meeting and you um here and at the last Labour Party conference was very interesting because um, Keir Starmer got all the uh, uh, um, reforms he wanted. Right, people voted against anti-Semitism. They voted him the power to do what he wanted against anti-Semitism. But then the next day they voted to say that Israel is a racist apartheid state and it should be boycotted and it's evil and 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 all the nonsense which underpins the anti-Semitism. All the uh, Zionism, which is kind of invented uh, by the anti-Zionists. Of course, Israel, you know, does, doesn't does have to be, um, you know, good or bad or, or, or whatever. Israel is what it is, but it is not, as Howard Jacobson once famously said, it, you know, it is not the worst thing in the world ever that should never have existed and should be destroyed and, and, and actually acts as a symbol. Israel becomes a symbolic thing that symbolizes all evil everywhere with the jackboot and um, with uh, the claims, for example, that US uh, American racist cops didn't know how to murder African-Americans before they were taught by the Zionists and, and all of that stuff, which puts Israeli evil at the center of the world. I just wanna say one other thing quickly, um, because it's important. One of the things we noticed from the experience of, of, of anti-Semitism becoming open in the Labour Party was that it focused in particular ways on Labour women. And um, uh, uh, people like Luciana Berger and um, uh, Joan Ryan um, and and other of the women who stood up against anti-Semitism got particularly harshly treated and not only particularly harshly treated, but they got anti-Semitism, which came in particularly misogynist forms. And so that's something that is not often noticed, but I, I suspect um, Hannah will have other things to say about that too, as would probably her sister. So, David Badil, uh, Hannah, unless you want to quickly uh, reply, we have one last. Do you want to add to that? I agree. That's all I have to say. It's a it's a good point um, to make. Thanks, David. So, David Badil, uh, we we end with you uh, and with with the topic of social media, uh, both in your book and uh, in your comedy, and frankly, more more than anyone of of of, of I think I've ever seen. You seem to really relish grappling with with the the, the dragon uh, of of viciousness uh, and inanity on social media. A lot of our questioners want to know uh, what is to be done. How are you to reply when, when you see uh, nonsense, often uh, of the anti-Semitic variety on social media? First of all, is that a real threat or just you know talk on Twitter? And and how should we go about treating it? There's two questions there. One relates to something which has nothing to do with what we're talking about, really, which is comedy. Uh, and that is that I personally think the best way of dealing with trolls is to comedy because they're hecklers. Uh, they're anonymous people shouting abuse at you from the dark. I'm used to that because I've done it in comedy clubs lots of times. And in fact, the way to respond to them, if you're going to respond to them, and I personally think ignoring them is actually not the best option, uh, is via making fun of them because uh, nothing takes the air out of rage and anger and abuse like making fun of someone. And then you also yoke in the uh, watching audiences, which is what you have to remember. You know, what, there's always an audience watching who will join in and say other funny things or whatever. It's actually quite a heartening experience. But you can see more of that if you come and see my show, Trolls Not the Dolls. Uh, in terms of the wider thing, I think there's an important thing I do need to say, uh, which is that I, I, I would never consider, even though I'm talking about using comedy, 
the uh, social media conversation to be it's just com- it's just Twitter. It's not real life. It's not important. That isn't true, sadly, um, and sometimes not sadly because sometimes amazing stuff happens on there. But certainly. What happens on social media is driving the conversation. Uh, even with a platform like Twitter that is not that big, it's like, got, I don't know what it's got on it, 300 million people, that's nothing compared to lots of other platforms. But the conversations that happen on there, you see them all the time, filtering into other parts of the political conversation, uh, and people are frightened about what's said on Twitter, people are frightened of online mobs or whatever. And the fear and inhibition on there creates an incredible sense of, we have to take notice of this. And in a way, that comes back to what I was saying about how, okay, so for example, in my book, I've got time to say this uh, very, very quickly. Uh, there's a, it begins with like 12 examples of Jews not counting. And one of those was uh, when uh, a guy on the Today program, which is the big political program on Radio 4, interviewed an American pollster about Ilan Omar in 2019 and the Democrats getting into a tangle about her opinions. And, and he just said, this, this presenter, why don't the Democrats just say anti-Semitism is not as important as other racism? Why don't they just say that? Why don't they just put out a statement saying, it's a, you know, it's bad, it's not as bad as other racism? And my point about that is not that he said it, but that there was no reaction. Can you imagine the reaction, the social media-driven reaction, but then the newspapers picking up on it, and then the paper, the TV, if it said that about any other form of racism? Right. So you can't ignore social media because that's where that stuff starts. The rage and anger that's starting to define our culture and that is missed out for Jews. Excellent point. Thank you so much, David. And on that note, um, I want to to wrap things up. I want to thank our guests, Hannah, Rose, Howard Jacobson, David Hirsch, David Badil. Thank you for shedding some light on what's going on across the pond and how that might inform our experience here in America. Liel, thank you for sharing the mic for this bonus episode of People, People of the Pod. And tune in to another episode this Thursday for my conversation with Pittsburgh Mayor Bill Peduto to commemorate the horrific shooting of the Tree of Life Synagogue. And Liel will make a cameo appearance there in that episode, too. If you enjoyed today's conversation, do not miss the next program of this AJC Tablet series on November 4th. It is titled, What is Polish History? Register for this program and more at AJC.org slash Advocacy Anywhere. Again, thank you all for joining us. And depending on where you are, enjoy the rest of your afternoon or evening. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts or learn more at AJC.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag people of the pod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.